Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yeah. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. I obviously realize that using substances that are banned is a form of cheating. Obviously, betting scandals can disturb the integrity of the sport. I just can't get it. A lot of these players come from pretty impoverished backgrounds. They struggle just to stay on the tour, to travel, to pay hotels, to have coaches. And I'm not justifying it or defending it or saying I want it to happen. But yeah, in, in the scheme of world injustices, someone taking a small payoff to throw a match in, in favor of a better, I can't get myself worked up over that. Hey everyone, John Wertheim here. It is this week's Sports Illustrated Tennis Podcast Beyond the Baseline. We are talking this week with Glenn Greenwald, who's an exceptionally accomplished journalist. Encourage you to look him up and look up some of his writing. We'll also link a few of his pieces. He lives in Brazil, and he is also a hardcore tennis fan. We're going to be talking to him about tennis. We're going to be talking to him about Rio, about politics. Great conversation, owing to... uh, to Glenn, and it was a pleasure to uh, to have done this on the eve of the Summer Olympics. Quick housekeeping note, I'll be doing some hosting for the NBC broadcast. All the tennis is going to be on the Bravo Network, so you can find the tennis coverage there. I don't know what that's going to mean for a podcast next week. We will try and put something together. But if you're looking for Olympic tennis, look for the Bravo Network. All right, let's bring him in now. Here's Glenn Greenwald. Um, I'm in this part of Rio called Alto de Bovista, which is kind of like in the middle of the rainforest where the big Christ, it's the same rainforest of the Christ is, but it's very close to, you know, the parts of Rio that you would know, like a 10 minute drive from Ipanema and Laban, but it's just up this mountain in the forest. Oh man. How, how long have you been there? 11 years. Good for you. Poor, and poor... I'm staying forever. It's just awesome. You think you're, th- you're there for the long haul? Yeah, yeah. We're actually, yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, for a while it was my only option because it was uh, my partner couldn't get um, immigration rights to the U.S. And, and Brazil 
weirdly offered immigration rights to same-sex couples, whereas the U.S. explicitly refused to. So for a while, it was our only option, and then we just kind of acclimated ourselves to it, and then even once, you know, now we do have the option to move to the U.S., but are not considering that. So, um, yeah, it's it's an amazing place. Oh, good for you. You can, you do your work anywhere these days. Yeah, it really, as you know, it just almost does not matter, as you're about to announce the Olympics from Connecticut. Uh, it was supposed to be our secret. Um, <laughs> no, thanks for, uh, thanks for doing this. I'm glad we... Uh, I'm glad we made this happen. You yeah, are uh, you're many things. You're a Pulitzer Prize winner. You are a voice of reason for many of us. You are uh, an inspiration as an investigative journalist for many of us. You are also, like me, a recovering lawyer. But most of all, you're a tennis fan, aren't you? Fanatical tennis fan, yes. Playing and watching. I, I'm much more successful at the latter than the former. Let's go down way to your uh, rabbit holes later. But uh, where, where did you? Uh, where, where's your fondness for for tennis come from? It's it's interesting because when I was growing up, um, my my parents watched a lot of tennis, and I interestingly I was always more drawn to to the women's game because the rivalry between um, Martina Navratilova and Chris Evert, which was kind of at its peak when I was you know a teenager. Um, was just so compelling in so many ways, obviously, beyond the tennis court. Uh, but even the men's game had huge personalities, you know, like McEnroe and Borg and these kind of contrasting Connors. Um, and so, to me, I was just always so fascinated, not just by the athleticism and the physicality part of the game, but just how much of a role personality and culture, and it's just such an international sport, and so it just always seemed to extend beyond just the tennis court. How do you feel uh, about contemporary tennis in this in this vein? Interestingly, I mean, I think the women's game still has a lot of those compelling factors. Um, the men's game, I think, has, notwithstanding its very high quality, has become a little bit stagnant. Um, I remember Ernest Goulbis last year, maybe a couple of years ago, created some controversy when he said in a press conference that the, the top players are kind of boring. <laughs> right, right. Um, and they're not boring on the court, but they do seem to be kind of drained of the vibrancy and passion and conflict that drove tennis, you know, in the 70s and 80s and 90s, and that made it so fascinating. They're all kind of managed and, you know, scripted and, and very kind of advertising ready, whereas the women's game has a lot more... I think vibrant personalities, a lot more unpredictability, um, and at the same time, the quality of the women's game has just continued to improve. So um, I'm still a huge fan of both, but I do find myself continue, continuing to be drawn a little bit more to, to WTA. I, I can't figure out what, um, I mean, this is something that gets discussed a lot, right? This sort of absence of color and, you know, Nick Kyrgios is this bad boy, but there's a lot of backlash. And um, I, I don't know if it's commercial pressures or if it's just, the commitment you need to the sport now is is unprecedented, and you you don't have time. Whether whether it's Studio Fifty Four, whether it's you know so, some sort of social advocacy, you just don't have time to do anything but play tennis and train these days. Um, it's true. I, I see that, and and you know, the early on, Djokovic definitely had some you know rambunctious components to his personality that that have been snuffed out along the way for the most part. Um, and and maybe the fact that, you know, his dominance of the sport um, kind of took place as he became a more controlled personality wasn't a coincidence. Maybe there is a relationship that, that you just suggested. Um, and, and, of course, Kyrgios, despite his massive talent, still has trouble 
being consistent and, and winning really big matches. I mean, he hasn't been to a, a, a semifinal of a slam. Um, and so maybe there is that maturation process needed because of the quality. But the only counterpoint to that is that the women um, do manage to kind of keep this commitment to very high-level play and, and excellence, and it's certainly close to as pressured, if not as pressured, um, and yet at the same time don't seem quite as constrained to express themselves in ways that create conflict and drama and tension um, in the sport that continues to, to make it interesting beyond just what's happening within the, the, the court. So it's hard to say, um, but I think that a lot of it has to do with just how commercial it's become, how the dominance of you know, managers and brands and, and things like that that just teaches players that if they want to prosper off the court, um, it's best to just be as kind of colorless and uncontroversial on the court. You know, it's, it's really interesting. And I, I don't know to, to what, what this says about us as fans, what this says maybe even about tennis as a sport, but this real or perceived diminishing color I think I think is a real role in I mean I hear this all the time. Oh, remember the characters and you had McEnroe and Connors and Nastasi and people can tick off ten players from you know, between nineteen seventy five and nineteen eighty five, they can whip off ten players like it's nothing. And you uh you ask them about today and it's uh, you know, the blonde Russian, Serena Roger Federer and the kid from Spain with the pirate pants. Yeah, I mean, how many casual fans can name more than a handful of, of even the top players? I mean, you know, just going back to what kind of got me attracted to tennis, I mean, I remember the class between, you know, Martina and Chris, you had, I mean, this, this woman who, who, even in the early 1980s, as a young, you know, um, asylum-seeking immigrant from the Eastern Bloc was openly gay at a time when nobody was. She hired a trans woman as her coach. Um, she had, you know, her partners and girlfriends in, in her box um, and kind of pioneered women's sports in this really kind of um, historical way, you know, just this recreating what it meant to be um, a, a female athlete with her weight training and, and her endurance. And then you had Chris, who was sort of this all-American um, woman um, and, and kind of seemingly regular and and just very mainstream um and yet they have this incredible friendship and yet this very intense competition and there just seemed to be a lot at stake not just you know in terms of sports but politically and culturally and and in all other kinds of ways the way they were inspiring people and touching people i think that's what's gotten lost um you know it's it's still a global sport but it's become really homogenized and constrained i think again more on the men's side and and that has drained it of some of its passion and importance I, I would say if Serena Williams had a rivalry with the contours of Everett Navratilova, which, which I, think, I think you raised a good point. I mean, this is a study in contrast, but there was always this civility, and I think it, it persisted today. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't an ugly rivalry in any way. But if Serena Williams had a foil, not just uh, you know, in wins-loss, you know, not, not just on the court, but sort of a, a cultural foil, you imagine what that would have done for women's tennis? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the Williams sisters are just so fascinating in terms of, you know, where they come from and, and how novel they are in tennis. Um, and there was some of that tension when they first arrived. There was, I think, some resentment. Um, there was obviously some, some racial animosity or tension, subtle or otherwise, um, from this traditionally very white sport, you know, and, and they just kind of came in from their own path and, and, and started dominating. And, and so, it, I mean, the Williams sisters just in and of themselves are obviously a really important sports phenomenon way outside tennis, but I do think it has suffered from 
a lack of rivalry. For a while, they, they had a rivalry with Martina Hingis, but, but that didn't last long because of her early retirement. Um, a little bit with Lindsay Davenport, with maybe some of the Russian players like Sharapova, Dementieva, but you're right. I think that the, 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 the kind of conflict that drove that Martina-Chris rivalry has been lacking a little bit with the Williams sisters because of a lack of sustained rivalry that could match something like that. All right, quick break to tell you about Sports Illustrated podcast. We take a great deal of pride here on our Olympic coverage through the years. We have a full delegation headed to Rio. Actually, today, Jamie Lasanti, they are leaving. Every four years, of course, athletes from all over the world compete for gold and glory in the summer games. And the podcast we have here to chronicle that, Sports Illustrated at the Games, is available when you subscribe. You'll get the top stories from Rio every morning on your podcast app of choice. You'll hear about the stories that the television coverage might have missed, all sorts of storylines. Just search for Sports Illustrated at the Games. You can also visit the SI.com slash Olympic site for SI's complete coverage of all the action from Rio. So you're, you're such a smart and knowledgeable fan and also such an accomplished journalist. Do you, you, feel like, you ever feel like weighing in on tennis? I mean, is, this, is this strictly diversion, or do you think to yourself, boy, there could be a really cool column in Topic X? The only times I get uh, jealous of the work that other people get to do is when I read columns by you or, or Courtney at the WTA or other famous tennis well, well-known tennis writers who um, you know, get to sort of go around the world watching tennis and then analyzing and writing about it. Um, and it's funny, there's this uh, writer at Slate, Emily Bazelon, who sure, was sure. a junior tennis player, and, and she interviewed Lisa Raymond a couple of years ago. Um, who she had played when they were like 12 years old and, and Emily got slaughtered. <laughs> um, and she talked about how, you know, the most compelling thing for her about tennis is, is what a mess she is on, on the court psychologically. Um, and Emily and I spent a few months talking after that, almost in kind of like a therapy session about the, the challenges, psychological challenges of tennis and the reason why it's so compelling. And, and yeah, we both said if we ever started writing about tennis, we would probably never go back to writing about politics or culture or anything else. So it's best we just... Uh, exercise the discipline and stay away. I think you need to publish those. Uh, I think you need to publish that that exchange. <laughs> it was it's only, a really ugly kidding. window into people who just can't manage themselves at all on a tennis court psychologically. I remember actually, I went to school with Emily. She she was a nice uh, she was a nice player if memory serves, but no, she was no, no Lisa, Lisa Raymond. Raymond. No Lisa Raymond. What, what about um, you know what what about sort of the the darker uh, aspects of the sport? Are there investigation i, mean, I don't know does your sort of corruption detector go off when you watch the sport or, or is this still in the diversion category yeah you know to be honest i mean i don't corruption in in sports or things like um the use of steroids or banned substances or even gambling doesn't really upset me um or interest me all that much um in a way that it does when there seems to be a lot more at stake, um, obviously, like in the political realm. Um, you know, I, 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 certain, I, I obviously realize that using substances that are banned is a form of cheating. Obviously, betting scandals can disturb the integrity of the sport. Um, some of the stuff that you've actually written and other people have written about some of the conflicts of interest and the way that it kind of subsumes the integrity of the game are kind of interesting to me. But at the end of the day, it is a game, and it is just a sport and so um if athletes decide that they want to put substances in their body that the you know league has banned or some player financially struggling takes you know two thousand dollars to throw a futures match or a challengers match um i'm certainly not in favor of having it be concealed but no it's not something that upsets me terribly 
I'm not sure that um, low-level match fixing is... Uh... Yeah, I, I can't get... I just can't get... A, a lot of these players come from pretty impoverished backgrounds. They struggle just to stay on the tour, to travel, to pay hotels, to have coaches. Um, and I'm not justifying it or defending it or saying I want it to happen, but, yeah, in, in the scheme of world injustices, um, someone taking a small payoff to throw a match in, in favor of a better, um, just I can't get myself worked up over that. The... Um... You speak to us from Brazil, where uh, I, what, what, you've, you've been here, what, 11 years, you said? Yeah, in Rio de Janeiro for 11 years. Um, how do you describe your country these days with the Olympics? Where We're recording this on Tuesday, so you know, 72 hours from now we will have a, uh, a splashy opening ceremony. How do, you, how do you describe Brazil these days? It's, it's really such a fascinating country on so many levels, um, and the Olympics in particular is, is a really vivid window into the ways in which it's fascinating. When the country bid for the Olympics, it was 2009, and that was during a time when Brazil's economy was booming. Right. Um, it was extraordinary. Literally tens of millions of people had been lifted out of poverty um, within a very short period of time, something that almost never happens. The president of the country, Lula da Silva, was probably the most popular and powerful um, elected leader in the democratic world. Everything looked incredibly good for this country that has struggled for so long, for decades and decades, with huge income inequality and poverty and deprivation of political rights. Everything was just looking up and and the olympics becoming the first latin american city ever to host the summer olympics is going to be the pinnacle of brazil's arrival as an important power on the on the global stage and it was going to be this important showcase for the beauty of the city and the people and amazingly when when they bid for the olympics almost all brazilians supported it it was this huge source of nationalistic pride now everything has collapsed um there's this extreme economic recession that they don't seem to be able to find their way out of. There's a political crisis where the democratically elected president has been impeached in what a lot of people think is a coup, um, or at least a soft coup. There's a Zika virus that, although wildly exaggerated in the Western press, is still a serious medical problem. Um, there's just huge amounts of problems, debt and, and disease and crime, that have played, that are plaguing Brazil generally in Rio in particular right as the Olympics arrives. And so what looked to be this incredible showcase of a beautiful, prosperous, vibrant, and evolving country has turned out to be this extreme humiliation and disaster, and everyone's just hoping that it goes off without some major catastrophe. And it's really kind of sad to watch the whole thing collapse so quickly. Is there a I mean, I think you're right that when these games were awarded to Rio, it was this great celebration, but we were also hearing, you know, this was, you know, this, this was the B in the, uh, this, this brick alliance that was going to dominate the world economy. I mean, I... I I remember reading one story said by 2020, the world's three largest economies were going to be, you know, China, India, and Brazil third, and, and the U.S. fourth. Um, that has obviously not happened. But but is it humiliation or is it simply you know these things don't move? Uh, you know, p- politics and economics tend not to move in linear ways, and you happen to be catching us at a lower point than we were in. 2009 but but so be it i mean is it is it at the point of humiliation right now yeah it's 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 definitely more extreme than that um there's there's obviously a part of it that maybe is cyclical that you know you you sort of go on the upswing for a few years and then just naturally have a little bit of a downturn but it's much worse than that And, and part of it is is still the fallout from the 2008 financial crisis that emanated on wall street and and took a few years but ultimately hit developing countries the hardest um some of it is just 
extraordinary amounts of, and rampant amounts of corruption in their elite class and their political and economic class. They've watched as the most powerful political figures and, and billionaires and tycoons have been hauled off to prison and sentenced to decades in prison on money laundering and bribery and corruption charges. So you have this political class that at the time of this economic disaster um, was just feeding at the tro and, and looking out only for itself. Um, and, and, so, and, and a lot of it was just sort of hubris, this idea that we discovered huge amounts of oil, our economy is booming, and it's just always going to continue. Um, and all these kind of human factors, along with some really bad luck and things that weren't their doing, um, kind of just all coincided at once that has created this, this really serious social strain. Um, Brazil still has a huge amount going for it. Um, it's you know, the fifth most populous country in the world. It's now the seventh largest economy in the world. It does have huge oil reserves. Um, the people are incredibly resilient. There's a diversity that, that has been converted into a, a genuine strength. Um, so there's still a lot of reasons to be optimistic. It's also probably, you know, if not the most beautiful place on earth, one of the most beautiful places on earth. Um, and, and there's good reason to think that the Olympics might go off better than people think. Expectations are so low that it's not that hard to now exceed them. Um, so I don't want to overstate the difficulties, but at the same time, they're, they're definitely pretty extreme and, and far worse than just the average standard deviations or, or bad luck that countries in all regions experience. Is it, is it too melodramatic to ask if Brazil is still a democracy? It's, it's definitely, it's an open question, um, which, is, um, which is another amazing thing to watch. You know, if you live in a democracy like the U.S. or in European countries, you just assume that democracy is the normal state of affairs and will always be that, because why would anybody want to change? Um, but right now, the, the, the factions that are ruling Brazil and that exert the most power in Brazil were not elected and could never be elected. Um, it's sort of the center-right coalition that wants to... Um, move Brazil away from BRICS and from multinational agreements into this sort of global capital system that, that people are really suspicious of and don't like. Um, they want to serve business at the expense of social programs, things that could never be empowered democratically. And so I wouldn't say that Brazilian democracy is over, but it's definitely imperiled. And there's no, I mean, it's, there's no sense that these Olympics could be a disguised blessing and foreign capital won't be scared off and we're going to we're going to pull this off even at this inopportune moment and this is going to be a catalyst towards getting back on track and becoming a player again in the global economy I mean, there, there's there's not a well, it, this where the u.s would be an easy spin right it is possible just because it's almost like the beauty and and vibrancy of brazil just almost overpowers you despite the other problems that that are so visible and present and people come to to rio or or just brazil generally um you know and i know you know this having been here before um and and immediately like on the first day say you know what i want to i want to be yeah, here right. stay here this <laughs> why, is this why am is i not living Nirvana. here exactly so i'm hoping that foreign journalists who come here for the olympics and and have the responsibility to accurately reflect what's taking place don't get so caught up in things like zika and you know crime stories um and events that don't quite work as efficiently as they might or um, dashed expectations from coming from a rich first world country and into a country that that isn't um, and and also focus on on what's so unique and, and extraordinary about this country and the people in a way that that will encourage investment and and tourism and the like as originally planned i don't know if we were rolling too when we we, we first started talking but you 
you could live anywhere in the world and you've made made a choice to live in Brazil and you've no intention of leaving. So uh that's Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm sort of a walking endorsement with my actions of of how great of a place it is. What is what is the uh going back to the Olympics? What are the expectations for Brazilian athletes? I mean, in, in London there was this whole sort of team GB and and Andy Murray talked about the pressure he felt in the tennis event as a player from the UK. Is there an expectation for Brazil's athletes or is this strictly sort of a socioeconomic cultural showcase? And if, if we win a few goals, great, but it is what yeah, it is. I mean, religion is, I mean, as sports is, is almost like the, the national religion. I mean, nominally the national religion is Catholicism with a strong evangelical component, but, but, but soccer um, is, is the real national religion. The, you know, but the Brazilian athletes are really accustomed to that, um, but they don't always hold up well under the pressure. I mean, in 2014, the World Cup was held here in Brazil, um, you know, the first time in many decades, and the Brazilian team was just rife with all kinds of tension and conflict and controversy, and they ended up suffering this devastating, humiliating blowout loss in the semifinals to Germany, 7-1, to one, for, for a country that prides itself on its soccer excellence to watch just goal after goal after goal being scored on their, you know, top athletes was really devastating. And actually at the time there was this perception that it contributed to the national woe that, that it just kind of, you know, reflected and in some way even exacerbated the difficulties of the country was, was having. So yeah, there's, there's definitely a lot of nationalistic pride at stake in how Brazilian athletes perform um, on the tennis front, I don't think the expectations are particularly high, though they have a great doubles team um, in Bruno Suarez and, and Marcelo Mello, who actually might earn a, a medal. Um, and, and there are a few other athletes, but I think that Brazilians are almost to the point where they've been so traumatized about the performance of their country that, that the expectations are not that high. NFL training camps are finally open, and we are fired up. You know who else? Jamie Lasanti. You know who else is fired up as well? Our colleagues at the MMQB, the big boss, Peter King, is on the van, the MMQB van. They are touring the guts of middle America. They are visiting all 30 teams. A whole. Sl- they are visiting all 32 teams, a slew of camps. They get ready for another bruising season. Find the MMQB podcast on your favorite podcast app or on si.com slash podcasts what is the status of tennis in brazil i mean you know i I think with the possible exception of pat rafter and roger Federer, it's hard to come up with a player who had the poll ratings so to speak of gustavo quirton there obviously hasn't been um a player of his stature since i mean what's the status of the sport in brazil it is interesting because because uh just made the sport incredibly popular. I mean, he's single-handedly popularized tennis in, in, in Brazil. And there are, after, after he, he sort of emerged as, as the star, um, and even once he retired, there are lots of public monies devoted to tennis programs to cultivate talent um, in poor areas and, and in the favelas and the slums. Um, and there's, there's a pretty, you know, tennis is constantly on television here. Um, on, on their main tennis, you know, on sort of their ESPN equivalents. Tennis plays a really prominent role in, in, in how sports is discussed. Um, and there are some up-and-coming young players. Uh, there's, there's this kid, Thiago Montero, who's about to enter the top 100 for the first time. He beat Songa earlier this year and, and Jill Simone last month. Um, and, and they have Bellucci, who's sort of a top 30, 40 player. 
Um, but they haven't really found a new tennis star. Um, they've had some success in doubles, like I said. Melo last year was the number one doubles player in the world. Um, but it's, I think they're, you know, if, if they can deliver on that, there's a huge market waiting for, um, uh, you know, a tennis, another tennis star. They just haven't quite gotten there yet. Will you be going to uh, any of the Olympics, tennis in particular? I'm still debating between um, trying to weigh the value of being able, the only one I consider is tennis, and I'm still trying to weigh the value of, of the enjoyment of, of watching it versus the misery of navigating through the traffic and, and hellish logistics. <laughs> um, so you sound like a I tennis player. I just haven't yet decided whether I'm going to avail myself of it. You, you sound like one of the players. Um, <laughs> I, I, I got I to, gotta, this is a little out of left field, but. Um, Walk me through this one, because I, I heard an interview you gave on Lenny Lopate. I, I've seen you, you had written this point before about this sort of false notion of, of objectivity and independence in, in media and politics in particular. And I don't, I don't want to mistake this, but I think you raised a really interesting point, which was sort of the, the, greater, the greater irresponsibility would be sort of playing it down the middle rather than calling attention to danger and untruths. And if it means being accused of partisanship so be it is that is that, is that reasonable yeah, so yeah. far you know i think that it's probably perceived by consensus for example that the greatest media failure of our generation if not you know the last say five or six decades judith miller right? was the run-up to the iraq war yeah. where media figures and 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 newspapers um felt this obligation to treat each side equally um and even to kind of put their finger on on the scale in favor of claims being made by the government um, out of a sense of patriotism or a fear of being accused of being um, un-American. Um, and I think from that has emerged this lesson that journalists have a greater duty than just mindlessly summarizing what people claim without investigating and scrutinizing it and ultimately um, reaching a conclusion when there's the facts supported about who's actually telling the truth and who isn't. Um, and I think the related point is that you know, all of us as human beings view the world through a subjective lens. None of us is com a computer. We, we are not objective. We don't understand the world through mathematics or numbers. We're all the byproducts of really subjective factors like socioeconomic background and nationality and race and religion. Um, and so I think one of the reasons why people have lost faith in, in media outlets and in journalism is because they feel deceived by it, from, by this idea that we float above um, you humans who have opinions. Right, we don't have right. opinions. We just this speak Olympian the truth. view of yeah. yeah. Um, and I think people distrust that and know that journalists have opinions and and they're hiding them. Um, and I think journalism becomes much more interesting, but also much more effective if people are honest about the things they actually think and believe. So the stakes are uh, considerably lower. I'll grant you that. Does does this thinking does this model not uh, transpose itself to sports as well? I mean, why, why, are we, uh, why are we playing it down the middle? Why aren't we just saying these are the teams and athletes I prefer that move me and I bring my experiences to bear in making this decision, but I'm going to tell you how I really feel. Yeah, you know, there was, there was this interesting controversy, journalistic controversy, where in the Wimbledon finals where McEnroe was announcing the Wimbledon final, notwithstanding the fact that the player who was paying him and who he was coaching, Milos Raonic, was, was playing. Um, and for me... I actually liked that. I thought that was a really great opportunity to get, you know, unique insight, um, not just by a tennis expert, but somebody who has actually worked with this particular player in a way that, you know, I'm always fascinated to hear the discussions between the coaches 
Um, and the players on the WTA tour on when, when they get to coach, because it just gives you insight into what they really think and how they, they conceive of, of how they approach the game. And I wanted that for McEnroe, but instead he was kind of forced into this role where he had to pretend to be neutral. Um, and the whole time it was, you felt kind of deprived of, of this value he could have offered, but also kind of tricked. Like, why is this person pretending to be a regular announcer when he's actually the coach rooting <laughs> right, for right. one of the, the, the competitors? And I think it would have been a much more honest and valuable exercise had he just announced the way he was really thinking, which is, I want Rayonich to win because that's the player that I'm coaching. And, and yeah, you, you would have had that disclosure. And I, I always said it's like, when, when, you know, when Donna Brazile's on CNN, we take her opinions with uh, whatever weight we want to import, but everybody knows the rules of engagement. And everybody knows where her loyalty and allegiances lie, and better that than the non-disclosed conflict. Yeah, you know, I, 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 the, the, the Rolling Stone journalist, Matt Taibbi, um, tells the story he grew up um, around journalists, like his uncle and his uh, friends of his, his parents. And he would say, you know, he would go out to dinner with them or when he was a kid or to a bar, and they would have these really raucous, candid conversations that were fascinating and enlightening about the world and about politics. And then you would read their copy the next day, and it would be drained of all of that you know, passion, all of that excitement, <laughs> right. um, because they were straightjacketed into pretending that they didn't have any of those perspectives. And he talks about the need to kind of revitalize journalism with this candor that makes it engaging and interesting and, and more honest. And, and that's the model I totally support as well. That sounds like sports TV in a nutshell. If, if people, uh, <laughs> there you go. If, if, if the fans were uh, privy to, you know, the, what, what was said in the green room, it's not always the same as what's said on the air. Not right, but tennis. it would probably be a little bit more enlightening in some ways. The, um, all right, this is, this is great. We've hit our half-hour mark. I want to tell you that if you ever want to write about tennis, with or without Emily Bazelon, you have a platform here. You're a little bit like a crack dealer luring me into a vice, but um, I really appreciate that, and I will definitely, it's something I would love to do. First hit is free. Um, th <laughs> thanks, this is great. And we're going to put this up before the Olympics, so I think this will give um, some great perspective on Brazil. Maybe, well, Next time we'll talk a little more tennis, but uh, this was great. I'm glad we did this. Yeah, I, 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 we talked about doing it a couple of years ago, and I'm glad we finally got around to it. It was fun. Obrigado, as they say. This is All great. Right, John, thanks so much. All right, Good thanks, talking to you. Take care. All right, that's Jamie Lasanti laughing as she tends to. She is our producer here and does an excellent job. I'm John Wertheim. That was guest Glenn Greenwald. He was terrific. I'm sure you will agree. Again, I encourage you to go down the rabbit hole, look at some of his work if you're not familiar with it. You likely are, even if you haven't uh, attached his name to it. He's really done some of the most important investigative journalism of the last few years. As a Brazil resident, it was great to have his perspective on what to expect in Rio and what's gone on in that country since they were awarded the games in 2009. It is a much different country. That'll do it for this week. Again, enjoy the Olympics, everyone. I'll be doing Bravo TV coverage. If Again, if you want to watch Olympic tennis, Bravo is the network for you. We will try and do a podcast as well. But um, thanks for listening. Always keep the suggestions coming. Good to hear from you guys. We'll do it again soon. Enjoy the Olympics, everyone. Take care.